the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. That's right. He's here to say hello. Welcome. Good to have you with us for the Wednesday edition of Lifeline. It is the 23rd day of January. My goodness, three weeks already into the brand new year. And before you know it, we'll be wishing you a happy 4th of July. And that's it. Time to cook the tree. Well, I guess I <laughs> let's not rush it, Craig, shall we? Oh, my goodness, how time flies when you're having fun and getting old at the same time. All right, we're going to have time flying in tonight's show. Lots to talk about. Pastor Sam Rohrer will join us later on tonight. We'll talk about reasons why believers should speak out in defense of the unborn. Also, Marlo Tucker, the director of the California chapter of Concerned Women for America. We have a new year, a new governor, same old legislature. What can we do? You get a sense of being uh, hopeless, perhaps, that there is a stranglehold of uh, liberal politics in Sacramento. And even though we're all good Californians, it feels as if at least a good percentage of us really don't have much representation in Sacramento. Could that somehow change? And if so, how? Marlo Tucker joins us to discuss just that. We'll also talk about how our neighborhoods are making us sick, a fascinating foray into some stark realities of where America is today. Talk about a widening gap between the haves and have-nots. Do you know between America's richest and America's poorest lies a gap, not just an educational gap, not just an income gap, not just a health care quality gap, but a life expectancy gap of 20 years means if you do well and were born on the right side of the tracks, you will likely live 20 years longer than the poorest of the poor in America. Something wrong with that picture of that vision of the American dream turning into what? More of a nightmare. We'll talk about that. Veronica Squires joins us. Right now, though, time to talk about the March for Life. Last week, of course, in Washington, D.C., between 250 and 300,000 attendees showed up for the nation's largest such event. And this Saturday, while it won't be quite as large a crowd, it will be a crowd nevertheless for the 15th annual Walk for Life West Coast. Countdown has started, and with us is the co-founder of the Walk for Life West Coast, Dolores Meehan. Dolores, Happy New Year to you. Hey, Happy New Year to you. Thank you for having a. Uh, thank you for having me on the show. Great to have you on to talk about this event. I think we've just about had a chance to visit annually about this. Hard to believe that here we are, fifteen <laughs> years later, and still continuing to go strong. And uh, you know, with the weather seemingly cooperating with us, it looks like it's going <laughs> to prove to be a great weekend and a great opportunity for uh, people to come out and fellow pro-lifers of of uh, all sorts, shapes, colors, and whatnot to be there. And um, it really not only an 
an opportunity to speak up on behalf of the unborn, but also an opportunity to speak up on behalf of all of the victims. And of course, many of those victims counted in that list are the mothers and fathers of abortion. Yes, that's right. And siblings. And, you know, and you also mentioned, I I was listening, uh, you were talking about one of your your, uh, next guests is going to talk about what to do with legislature in California. And and being discouraged, and, and a, a great antidote to discouragement is, as well as a vaccination, is uh, coming to the Walk for Life. Because when you're surrounded by all of these people who have come out from all over the state and even beyond to stand for life and to bring joy to a city that, that you know, people don't associate with that kind of goodness. Um, I do, because I'm born and raised here, and I... I I think there's lots of pearls in our in our beloved city, but uh, I think that's that's a it's a great reason to come to the Walk for Life is simply to um, to, to know that you're not alone. Absolutely, and and in doing so, you know, the tremendous sense that of encouragement comes from that. And you know, uh, yes. people involved in the pro life movement for many many years, uh, you know, there there have been ebbs and flows, and moments of great victories, and moments of huge disappointments. Overall, though, yes. do you get the sense, uh, Dolores, on a nationwide basis, that we're beginning to really win this battle? I think so. Uh, I, I think that the. Uh, you know, it's very hard to get a sense of that when you're in San Francisco um, because there is, and, and also, you know, just the media really would like you to think that that's not the case. But, um, you know, as people, the people are growing up who real-time ultrasound and hearing heartbeats, and 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 so there is, there's a lot of irrefutable evidence that's already in their mind. I mean, you know, they've been they've been raised with that, and and so being exposed to the you know the the arguments in favor of abortion, you have to combat that you know really in inbred inbred um, knowledge and those facts. And I I think uh, I think that the the, the movement for abortion is. Is, has got an uphill battle, and certainly you can see that because they've now in California moved to where nurse practitioners are allowed to perform abortions, and and that can only be the case because doctors are are less willing to do it, and of course that's a very good indication. Indeed, so, and of course at the end of the day, so much of this is about the money, as as we've long known. Um, this yeah. coming event on Saturday, you're going to include yeah. a number of keynote speakers, at least two of which have at uh, other times worked for Planned Parenthood. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's what's so wonderful. This is, this is ex- especially why, you know, you have people like, if I can do a shout out to Wynette Sills in Sacramento, who is tireless. She is such, uh, you know, she is she is such a, a staunch trench fighter for the unborn in in front of Planned Parenthood, and this is praying in front of abortion clinics is really it really works. And and when you we see these people who you know former employees who were affected by those prayers, you know, unbeknownst or or, or perhaps they they knew it um, and admit it, it's. It has to give encouragement to those who are, are you know, really, it's a, it can be a very lonely feeling when you're standing in front, you're standing on the street corner and people are cursing you and, and all of that. But it's it's just where you got to be. It's um, as, as, you know, I've noted I don't do it enough, but 
I always feel it's uh, Calvary because you have innocent life being destroyed for the sake of sin. And so in that place, you know, you, you are surrounded by those who were with Christ at Calvary. And, and so I think there's, there's, of course, those graces. But, uh, yeah, I, I think um, to, to see somebody turn the corner, and that's why we can't give up. Like, we have to pray for our governor. We have to pray for our lawmakers. Um, and always remember uh, that, that our enemy is not any of these people. Our enemy is not of flesh and blood. And so we, we can't let them be collateral damage in our, in our battle either. And, yeah. and I think at the Walk for Life, we've, we've got a wonderful tradition of love and peaceful um, expression and and um, and it and it's 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 God's blessed it. Not a uh, not a demonstration of protest, but rather a demonstration of love. Toward that end, Absolutely. again, the um, event will be this Saturday. Tell us a bit more. <coughs> pardon me, Dolores. Tell me more about where and what time. Yeah, so we start uh, the Silent No More awareness um, uh, campaign, which is the women women and men giving their testimonies. That's uh, run by the Silent No More Awareness Campaign is going to be, that begins at 11 a.m. at Civic Center Plaza, just to the right of the main stage as you're facing the main stage. The main event starts at 12.30, the rally, and goes to 1.30, and then from there we walk down Market Street and and end at the Embarcadero Center. It's also for those who are, um, who those, those who would like to attend, Archbishop Cordleone uh, celebrates Mass at St. Mary's Cathedral at 9.30 in the morning, and that goes to about 10.30, and then a lot of people walk down. But for uh, for Catholics or even non-Catholics, anyone, or uh, that people that would, would like to, to be there, it's very powerful. It's the, the cathedral's packed, so it's the biggest Mass of the year at St. Mary's Cathedral, which is, which is, which is quite, a, quite a large cathedral, so it's, um, it's inspiring. And then uh, subsequent events, if you go to our website, walkforlifewc.com, then you can see uh, that there's, there's ancillary events. Um, both Friday and Saturday evening. All right. Sounds good. And again, that's taking place Friday, Saturday evening, and of course, um, Saturday morning, the big event. Details available on the web at walkforlifewc.com. That's walkforlifewc.com. The 15th annual Walk for Life West Coast this coming Saturday, January the 26th. And again, complete details available on the web at Walk for Life WC for West Coast, walkforlifewc.com. Our thanks to co-founder of Walk for Life West Coast, Dolores Meehan, for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. All right, we check in with, I almost said Tony Bennett. Is he doing traffic right now? I left my traffic in Santa... (laughs) Michael Bennett. He's got a look at traffic for you. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to the conversation. You know, if you give just a cursory look at the Declaration of Independence, you will learn that the right to life, in fact, is embodied and emboldened inside our Declaration of Independence, in spite of the fact that seven of the nine justices back in 1973 chose to ignore that fact. We, though, as believers, I think, cannot ignore that fact that, in fact, life is precious, that each and every one of us are created in the very image of God and, as such, have an obligation, I believe, to defend life. Where are we as the church, as a whole, on the front lines of life? We're joined now by 
Pastor Sam Rohr, president of the American Pastors Network. He also is the host of the nationally syndicated Stand in the Gap radio program, heard on stations across the country. And Pastor Rohr, always great to have you on the program. Well, it's great to be with you, and it's always a pleasure of mine to be with you as well. A lot of believers have been on this front line for years, if not decades, uh, in the, what, almost 45, 46 years now, I guess, since the passage of the or the, the Roe versus Wade decision. Uh, but while as many have been on the front lines, a lot of believers have also been MIA, missing in action. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, I think there's a couple of, th- couple of reasons. One, uh, our culture has been shaping the minds of our people for a long time, um, predating 1973, really, uh, that was moving us away from a connection uh, to God, separating us from uh, our, our uh, national uh, history. You referenced the Declaration of Independence. Our founders were very, very uh, dependent upon God as creator, a biblical Judeo-Christian worldview. That's been under attack for a long time. And uh, I think so, bit by bit, the culture has been moving us away from God. And, uh, and when you get into the days of, uh, uh, you know, of, of, of Nietzsche and of old that said that God is dead and we've killed him, uh, that has factored into the mindset of the, the Marxes and the Freuds of the world that really have worked together in this country to dethrone God in our culture and to move us away from him. So on one hand, moving with clear strategy to take us away from our godly heritage and our Christian, biblical, Judeo-Christian worldview. That's on one hand. On the other hand, uh, I think that the Church itself, uh, the Church generally, uh, has been absent, missing in action, as you said, uh, because we know that that the great majority of the pulpits of America for a long time haven't even preached on uh, the matter of life. And so I think on one hand, even good people, even those who support life, but certainly those who go to church and ought to know more about it, have not been hearing the apologetics of uh, the theological underpinnings of life and where it comes from and what it is about life that is so valuable. So on one hand, we've not been fortified from within, and we've let us, I think it's let us open to attack by those on the outside who have been purposely trying to move us towards a culture of death. You put those two together, I think it brings you to where we are in this uh, nation today. All right, that said, um, let, let's talk a bit about the events that have unfolded here, you, you know, even, even as recent as this past weekend, uh, large numbers in Washington, D.C. It's sometimes difficult to get a sense as to who is exactly right. Uh, it, it seems to be somewhere in the sweet spot of about 250,000, 300,000, though I've heard numbers almost twice that level. Overshadowing those huge numbers has been this recent controversy regarding the Covington High School students and allegations of... Uh, in engaging in uh, discriminatory behavior with Native Americans. The videotape, of course, the full story proves just the opposite of that. It's, it's served, though, as a major distraction, I think, to the, to the, to the greater point, and that is that uh, there's an increasing percentage of Americans, I think, that are finally saying, you know, we as a country really need to once and for all come to terms with the scourge of abortion. I mean, aren't the numbers somewhere, somewhere in the neighborhood of 61 million? 
that have been aborted since 1973? Yeah, that's that's about the numbers for the for the United States and uh, and worldwide. It's between 45 and million, 50 million per year. Uh, so you've got you know around the world 125,000 or so per day that are having their lives taken. But we are ahead of the pack here in the United States, and so yes, with 61 million of our babies that have been killed, 30,000 of those, the number I think so far, who think that those would be perhaps young baby girls that have been killed. And I just came to light in this whole New York law that was just passed by Como today, taking abortion up to the ninth month. Uh, These kinds of numbers are staggering. And uh, it should be a wake-up call for every person in this country. But, you know, Craig, I believe that those who are awakened to atrocities of this type are those who have a sensitivity to truth. But those who have turned down the God of heaven, Romans 1, those who have had a knowledge of God and denied and walked away, <clears throat> said we, have, we want nothing to do with God or Jesus Christ or the Bible or absolute truth, those individuals, of which I believe there are many, lose their sensitivity to what is right and to what is wrong. And they lose their conviction, their, their, their sensitivity to conviction of the Holy Spirit, which is the only entity, person, who can make any one of us understand the truth. And so uh, we've had a large segment of people who have just turned their back on the truth. So facts, realities, what we're talking about now, the sheer, the fact that you could have, could have killed 60 million of our Americans and not shock someone to the core is an indication, I think, of where we have gone. And yes, those who do appreciate life, we, I think, even though we have spoken up collectively, I think we've not spoken up enough, and I think that that voice needs to get louder because God is seeing what's taking place, and that worries me more than anything uh, relative to God's judgment on any nation that runs pell-mell into the shedding of blood that uh, he's that God actually judged Israel in the days of old about it's not a it's not a laughing matter it's a serious matter from no matter how you look at it but it's very serious when you look at it from God's perspective is there some sort of motivating fear here that also frightens or paralyzes uh, some in leadership from addressing this issue publicly from the pulpit. Um, I, I think, for example, of the percentile of abortions we mentioned it earlier, 61 million since 1973. And of those, 18,300,000 and counting, roughly one-third of all abortions in America um, have claimed black lives. And when you juxtapose that against the percentile of African-Americans in the United States, approximately 13 percent, you look at that and say, my goodness, 13 percent, and they're having more than a third of the abortions in our country today. Why don't we hear more from leadership that says, you know, this is almost an American genocide going on here? I I think uh, in the most simple of terms... Uh, Craig, I think the reason we do not hear more from leaders, and I'm going to talk about those even in the pulpits of America, those kind of leaders, in addition to those in office, obviously, but moms and dads are in leadership positions. So anyone in a position of leadership, I think we don't hear uh, in, fr- from them more than we, than we do, because ultimately 
I think that there is a greater fear of what man says than what God believes. It's a greater fear of man than a fear of God. And it's the fact that I think as a culture and as individuals, we've moved away from the reality that there is truth. We've gotten bound up in this mentality that, well, what may be right for you is not necessarily right for me. And what's right for me, I can't really impose upon you. And you take and you put that kind of a thinking, which is a prevailing thought, on top of a culture that says we want to do what we want and we don't care what God says. It's an intimidating factor, except for those who are the most courageous, perhaps are the most committed uh, morally and biblically. And I think that that's been a cause for the, um, in part, for why there's been such silence. It's a deafening silence. And sadly, when you look at this, I mean, the, the the national abortion statistic is essentially one out of every four women. So 25% of all women in the country will have gone through this experience at some point in life. Uh, when you talk about the nation uh, as large as we are, um, you begin to realize how many lives have been touched by this in one way or another, either directly or uh, indirectly through, you know, uh, fathers and, and uh, brothers and sisters, et cetera, et cetera, and grandparents, too. And you begin to realize that part of perhaps the muzzle here, part of the, uh, the unwillingness by some to speak up, is the overwhelming sense of fear, as you suggested. And I think there's also a tremendous sense of guilt and shame. Uh, that coming out from this to 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 address this thing in a in an acknowledgement fashion in a public fashion before God um, can be something that is very fearful and I think to a degree we need to help people understand that while abortion may be taking of a life um, there is forgiveness there is healing and restoration for those whose lives have been touched by abortion and that the kind of victory that can be found can allow one to then get past the guilt and shame and perhaps be a bolder witness on behalf of the unborn. Sam Rohr, we appreciate the time. Sam, of course, is the president of the American Pastors Network. And a quick look at the issue of the sanctity of life. And, of course, the topic continues in focus during the entire month of January as we regretfully mark here the 46th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, which made abortion legal in America. 5.30 from KFAX. All right, we're going to turn a corner here to get you around that corner. Here's the latest with Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. 5.35 here on this Wednesday edition of Lifeline. Well, um... You've heard the old adage, the rich get rich and the poor get poor, or in some cases, the rich get rich and the poor get sicker. It's amazing when you look at the statistics to show the growing gap between the richest of Americans and the poorest of Americans. You would not think in a nation like ours that boasts one of the biggest and oldest industrial and uh, computerized economies nation that has been an innovator in healthcare and medicine for well over a century, um, a nation that has always talked about taking care of its own, as well as we are engaged quite often in taking care of others outside of our borders. And yet, in spite of all of this, one would not think 
that a nation like America would see as broad a gap between the haves and have-nots of life expectancy of as much as 20 years. You begin to realize that the cumulative impact of the differences in health care, housing, drugs, drug abuse, employment, education, and all of it slowly take a toll on individuals and, in fact, as a result, can significantly shorten the lifespan. A look at this broader topic of not just what's making us sick, but most importantly, what the remedy can be, found inside the pages of a new book called How Neighborhoods Make Us Sick, Restoring Health and Wellness to Our Communities. And with us today is the co-author of this new book, Veronica Squires. Veronica is Chief Administrative Officer at the Good Samaritan Health Center in Atlanta, Georgia. She has worked also as a Director of Corporate Development for Boys and Girls Clubs of Metro Atlanta and joins us now to discuss this new book. Veronica, welcome. Thank you, Craig. Thanks for having me. 20 years life expectancy. You know, if if you told me that there was a 20-year life expectancy difference between people that live in America and people that live uh, in Nicaragua or in uh, parts of Southeast Asia or on the African continent, I would say, well, yeah, of course, that makes sense. Never would have imagined, though, that the gap is that significant, that severe right here in America. It's pretty incredible, and actually what really brought it home for me was when a friend and colleague, Dr. Carrie Norris, who works with the local hospital authority, shared the following quote, and it's that someone's zip code is a better predictor of their life expectancy than their genetic code. And that just really brings home the impact of environment and what the population health world refers to as social determinants of health, which are things like you mentioned, you really nailed it. environment, crime, housing stock, education, uh, drugs, just different factors in the environment in which we live, work, play, grow, and age that take a toll on the body and over time decrease life expectancy. So in Atlanta, where I live, I'm driving just about three miles from Buckhead, the you know high-end retail center, great jobs, to the southwest side of town where I lived with my family for about a decade. Uh, differs as much as 13 years in life expectancy just driving a few miles across the city. And and I wonder, as we see, and this is unique to certain areas of the country, like the San Francisco Bay region, where uh, the degree of gentrification is such that what had been uh, inner-city communities are now essentially seeing the previous residents forced out so that the entire mm-hmm. makeup of an entire city uh, becomes of largely very wealthy people. A median price of a home in San Francisco, last I checked, was $1.2 million. And that's not for a palace. That's for, you know, 75-year-old uh, flat that might have uh, one bathroom and two, maybe three bedrooms if you're lucky. So I, I'm wondering if, if we're going to see the, the spread of this problem insofar as People in the inner cities are being driven out and they're being forced to live in other local communities and in bedroom communities and things of this sort. And and so I wonder what, what kind of impact of gentrification are we going to see um, happening on this issue of na- sick neighborhoods? I mean, some neighborhoods will get healthier, but it'll just spread the disease, so to speak, to elsewhere, won't it? Yeah, you're exactly right. And there's actually a lot of discussion about that very thing in lots of communities, but in particular, the Christian Community Development Association, which is the group through which I got certified to do community redevelopment. Um, There's actually a number of books on the topic, but essentially what they see happening 
is that the poor are being pushed out now to the suburbs as a lot of younger folks uh, want to move in town. They want to be close to their jobs. They want the urban city experience. So they're coming back in town, gentrifying these older, previously poor neighborhoods, as you described, and it pushes the poor further out of the city, which actually makes it even harder then for them to access critical resources like food or public transportation or access to, you know, day labor or jobs. Um, and so that, you know, that's a real challenge and, and problem. And, and one thing they're trying to do here in Atlanta to address that is to change some of the tax laws and requirements so that folks who are legacy residents in some of these lower income communities can stay um, without being pushed out with the rising property taxes. It's, it's a very young program and we have yet to see what the results are but um, there are there are going to be some efforts needed at the city level um, to be able to reverse that trend of the poor being pushed out to the suburbs. One of the things that's very revealing in your book is the cumulative effect of so many of Mm -hmm. these scenarios. You know we have issue initiatives that will deal with trying to provide better health care. And, and certainly there have been <laughs> attempts, some good, some not so successful by the legislature in doing that and saying, okay, we need to uh, do a better job in making sure that everyone has access to good health care or dealing with the housing crisis such as we're facing here in California, unemployment, education. But your book really reveals that in many of these neighborhoods, it's not just one or the other. It really is a combination of all of the above that's having an impact on the quality of life and the quality of health. And I think that became so clear to me and my family when we were actually living in the midst of it. So we intentionally located into a poor community in southwest Atlanta uh, right after we graduated from college and got married. And the purpose of it was to be part of community redevelopment and basically bring resources and leadership back into a community that had experienced white flight a few generations prior. And while we did some really neat programs in the community and we did our best to love our neighbors and, um, you know, take them to church and start tutoring programs and we had a capital improvement project that happened at the local park, on the whole, we saw that the interventions we were taking part in were not having the impact that we would have hoped that they would. And beyond that, we found our own family getting sick from the, just like you said, cumulative impacts of all of the stressors that happen every day in these poor communities. And mind you, my family, we're middle class with dual income. We have health insurance. We have a strong family safety net. And yet even we were impacted by social determinants of health over time. Um, So, yes, absolutely the cumulative effect, and I think that's what makes it so challenging and overwhelming for the poor living in these neighborhoods is you just have it coming from every direction. You've got issues going on with the schools, and then there's violent crime in the community, and then your house, which may be old and poorly insulated or have mold issues, is causing respiratory problems for your children, and then there's relational strain, you know, on and on and on, and I refer to it in one of the chapters as something like a dripping faucet that never stops. Um, it's just constantly this drip, drip, drip of challenges. And what happens in the body is it's like allostatic load overload. Um, the body is made to be able to respond to stress and recover and then respond to the next stress and recover. But in these communities, like you said, there's so many things happening at once and they compound upon each other. There is no time to recover. And that's where you start to see 
the health being impacted, and then over time, over generations of that, lifespans start to be shortened. Well, and essentially what you're describing are families that are under siege. And I, and I say it that way because, as you suggest, it is a cumulative total of many factors. And, and oftentimes government in particular uh, takes a very myopic view. So we look at the gentrification happening in the city of San Francisco in the Mission District, for example, and say, well, we need to put out a mandate then for uh, more accessible, more income, a uh, low-income housing. So any new developments will have to dedicate, to, you know, 20% to uh, below-market-rate units, things of this sort, and we're going to solve the uh, the housing crisis. Okay, but uh, now that we've made a way for them to be able to afford a home, if they still can't afford health care, or if they're in a neighborhood that has lousy schools in it, or they're two blocks away, and they may be in a decent place to live, but they're two blocks away from ongoing violence. Uh, it's not just the physical stresses that besiege a family, but it's a lot of the the emotional stresses, that sense of uh, of, of the lack of well-being, or uh, shall we say, the, the safety. I mean, you you got no place to cocoon. You may you may be happy you have a roof over your head that doesn't leak, but if you can't afford health care or you can't put food on the table or healthy food on the table uh, every night in order to uh, make that mortgage or rent payment, uh, at the end of the day, you still have a major problem, don't you? You do, and it forces hard decisions on families that they shouldn't have to make. One thing we see a lot at the Good Samaritan Health Center, which is a charitable clinic where I and my co-author, Brianna work, is people that are having to make the choice to be able to pay for their copay, but it means that then their grocery bill, their grocery budget that month is lower, or they have to take time off of their job, which is very costly if you're an hourly or daily worker, to be able to bring their child in for a necessary appointment. Um, we see people sacrifice to be able to afford medications. I know when I was living in the southwest Atlanta neighborhood, I knew folks who regularly sold their food stamps to be able to pay for routine shots for their infants. And so it, it does, it forces these really heartbreaking choices on families when, as you put it so well, they need all of the same things that we all need to have a healthy, happy family. Um, and, I, and I think there's an important point to make here, too. Um, um, uh, for example, there's there's a lot of angst towards people like uh, Alexandria uh, uh, Ocasio Cortez, and they say, "Oh boy, you know she uh, she's really unbridled in the statements that she makes, and she seems to be just nothing but a gung ho socialist." Uh, and I'm not making any excuses for her. What I am saying is that she lives in a part of New York where she can observe the day to day impact on all of this. And I think one of the major differences that our nation is is uh, not dealing well with is understanding that for those of us for whom a difficult decision is, I don't know, do we want to get the Mercedes in black or in white? Or this is going to be a tough one. Do we take the kids to Disneyland in Anaheim or to SeaWorld in San Diego? I mean, these are the tough choices we're facing with, right? Right. And yet there are parents and families out there that say, we need to decide whether we eat a meal tonight or save that money because the baby has uh, a cold or the flu, whatever, and we we need medicine. Uh, Those are the real tough choices. And realistically, no American should have to face those. We went through that era. It was called the Great Depression. 
And by the close of the Second World War, we had put that behind us, at least we thought or hoped we had. Um, sadly, we're finding out, as Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always. But we need to go, do a better, better job, I think, in also understanding uh, that, yes, we are our brother's keeper. And what can we do to, to improve our ability to have a multifaceted approach that what's making our neighborhoods make us sick is not just one issue, it's a multiplicity of issues. So how can we begin then to take that broad brush approach to addressing these? And my suspicion is it probably comes down to um, shared duty, shared responsibilities. And we'll talk a bit about that after we come back. A brief time out, a traffic update for you. Veronica Squires with us, co-author of How Neighborhoods Make Us Sick. Restoring health and wellness to our communities as Lifeline continues. Get a look at traffic here again, 549 on the clock, and Michael Bennett on traffic. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Veronica Squires with us, co-author of How Neighborhoods Make Us Sick, Restoring Health and Wellness to Our Communities. And as we're learning in this new book published by InterVarsity Press and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through letsmakehealthyneighborhoods.com. That's the website, Let's with no apostrophe. Don't try that. Letsmakehealthyneighborhoods.com. One of the challenges, as we've been delineating here, is that oftentimes government will approach one or approach the other, but this really seems to be multi-pronged, multifaceted. It's almost as if this is a this is a big job for the community, not only in terms of looking, doing a better job of looking after themselves, but then for those of us that have a heart and have compassion for what we see taking place here, um, it's going to take a lot of resources coming together in order to address the multiplicity of challenges in these neighborhoods, isn't it? Absolutely, and I think at an organizational level, what you're really looking at is a newer approach to addressing complex social issues called collective impact. So we, we need everybody at the table. You need police and fire and nonprofit organizations and government and food pantries. You need everybody sitting down together as well as the neighborhood and coming up with plans to address the holistic nature of health and what the community is going through. Because you're exactly right if you just put a boys and girls club there or you just build a nice park or you just put in a grocery store it's not going to address the holistic nature of issues that the community needs to be healthy i think on an individual level though it's it's a simpler question that folks can begin to ask themselves that i think will actually lead to widespread change so all of us fairly naturally ask ourselves the question every day what will make me healthy what will make my family healthy and we make decisions in support of that. But if we just add a third question, which would be, what would make my neighbors healthy? And we think of neighbors in terms of people not just directly next door, but maybe those folks three miles away that have a 13-year, 20-year life expectancy gap. It just might start to change the way that we consume, the way that we shop, the way that we think about sending our kids to school, whether we send them to the local school system or private school where we live. Uh, where we dine. And I think some of those little daily decisions in aggregate, just like in aggregate, the hard things in these communities, weathers and wears on the body, in aggregate, these small decisions, these small positive decisions in support of making our neighbors healthy, all of our neighbors healthy, I think can actually lead to a big change. And because of that, Brianna and I very intentionally devoted half of the book to solutions. We didn't want the book to just be about 
the hard realities and the problems, we very much wanted to provide a roadmap for change and hope that change is possible, and we believe that it is. Let's talk about what we can do in order to engage in a sense of of coordination, because sometimes you'll find in neighborhoods organizations are working against each other, not intentionally so, but there's there's oftentimes duplication of efforts. As I suggested earlier, the one outfit that seemed to do the worst at all of this is government. Is this really particularly a job for communities and the faith community at large to, to harness and come together? I think the faith community can play a big role, and I think what you're talking about with organizations being pitted against each other, a lot of times that happens because the incentives related to funding are often uh, set organizations up to compete. You know, one organization in an effort to secure the big grant has to show that their program is better or their outcomes are better. And so I think what you you need to start to do is create a different incentive structure for nonprofits and other agencies to collaborate. So basically giving positive incentives for collaboration. This is actually something that's being done in Atlanta through the local community foundation of Greater Atlanta, where they're now putting together uh, requests for proposals and opportunities that only fund organizations that are working in partnership. It's a really unique way to start to get at having organizations stop duplicating efforts and work together and basically in a complementary style to address these complex problems. Um, So I think that would be one thing. In terms of the faith community, one thing I've just been so impressed by here in Atlanta is so many churches and individuals want to give of their time. They want to be active. They want to come to Good Sam, volunteer, work on our farm, pass out produce at the market. And that's all awesome. I think getting involved in your local community or the community nearest your church or faith congregation is a really great way to start and doing something that you can really commit to on a long-term basis because this work, as I found with my family, having lived in the community for a decade, is a long-term commitment. It's going to take years. It's going to take decades. The life expectancy gaps might not be closed in my lifetime or Brianna's. Um, but it's still, it's still worth the work. Um, so I would encourage faith congregations to find an, a local nonprofit or a local clinic, volunteer, give money. Um, these organizations are often doing Herculean efforts on a shoestring budget, so I can't uh, overstate how important giving and philanthropy is. Um, and ask the organization and the community how they best need your help versus going in with an idea of how you want to help. Um, and I think coming with that humble posture will really be powerful. And and for those listening that say, you know, I, I've I've long recognized a sense in me that I want to do something to make a difference, and this is particularly apropos for. Uh, people maybe of retirement age that can serve as mentors and have not only the time and the skill and, uh, and talent to uh, to make available. Where should they start? Uh, maybe think of an old neighborhood where they used to live. Maybe they still live there now and say, I want to go and help make a difference, but I don't know where to start, where to turn. What would you advise them? I think a, a great place to start would be to go to that community that comes to mind and drive around. Drive around the neighborhood and notice what's there and what's not. Kind of do a mental asset map of what does this community have and what might they be lacking. And then when you identify what's lacking, which could be leading to lower health outcomes for the community, look for a nonprofit organization or a clinic or even a government agency that is present 
and go to them and say, this is what I've observed, I'm willing to volunteer, am I correct that this is a need, how can I help? And I think that would be a great place to start. This book, of course, is a comprehensive look at um, not just the challenge that are uh, communities are facing, but most importantly, many of the answers um, to get the dialogue started, to move this forward, and to make a difference in many of our neighborhoods that are making us sick. A book called How Neighborhoods Make Us Sick, Restoring Health and Wellness to Our Communities, again, newly published uh, by InterVarsity Press. You can get the book online through the usual suspects as well as through letsmakehealthyneighborhoods.com. Our thanks to co-author Veronica Squires for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. All right, 6 o'clock from KFAX. Much more to come your way when we come back. What we can do to deal with a new governor and an old legislature. Marlo Tucker from Concerned Women for America next. But first, here's that promised update on traffic. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.